0: The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I first met Donna Brazil in 1990 when she was managing the campaign of Eleanor Holmes Norton for delegate to the House of Representatives from Washington, D.C. She was then, as she is now, ebullient, outspoken, passionate, and sometimes controversial. No more so than with the publication of her book, Hacks, the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. Donna recounts her experience at the Democratic National Committee and as its interim chair uh, during that very consequential campaign. She came to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago last week uh, to talk about all this, and we sat down there. Donna Brazil, it's so good to see you here and at the Institute of Politics. It's great to be here. You're a uh, you're the big newsmaker these days, <laughs> but and we're going to get into all of that. But I would be remiss if I had you here and didn't ask you about your story and your family's story, which is so uh, so rich and helps explain why you do what you do. But tell me a little bit about your family and growing up in Louisiana.
2: Well, I'm the third of nine children. Um, of Catholic, uh, um, a Catholic family. My family, if you walked in my my uh, my house back in the um, middle of the '60s, you would have seen a picture of John F. Kennedy, uh, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. And, of course, Jesus. If you walked in there today, you would see those same figures, but Barack Obama as well. (laughs) Uh, My parents were working poor. Uh, My dad was a janitor at a local high school. My mom, a maid downtown in New Orleans. Uh, We were raised to, um, to pay it forward, to give back and pay it forward. And so on the night that Dr. King was assassinated, I'll never forget that as long as I live, I was eight years old. And my grandmother called us all in her room in the order of our birth. Cheryl, Sheila, Donna, Tatey Chet, Lisa, Dimitri, Kevin, Ziola. And my grandmother wanted us to pray. And she said we had to pray because Dr. King had been murdered. Uh, And she wanted us to pray for his family, pray for Mrs. King and the children, uh, but also to pray for whoever killed him. And I thought that was odd. And I raised my hand. I used to always raise my hand. And I said, Grandma, why do we have to pray for the murderer? And she said, because God, you know, teaches us to love one another. And whoever did it, his family tonight uh, or her family, well, she said his family would be suffering as well. So that night I prayed, and a year later I was going door to door to encourage people um, Encourage my friends to get their parents to register and vote. So I've been at it now since— Yeah, so you're
1: nine years old.
2: Nine years old. So I've been at it for a long, long time. Uh, I recently counted up 11 presidential campaigns, seven of which I was uh, a paid staffer, Um, 21 uh, off-season election, midterm elections— in addition to those that are held in Virginia um, right after a presidential and Louisiana, which is also an unusual uh, pres- uh, an unusual unusual election cycle. So I've been at it now for almost fifty years.
1: You know, uh, <clears throat> I too began uh, my yeah. political career when I was nine years old, yes, handing, handing leaflets out for. Bobby Kennedy, but I always say when I say I I work for Bobby Kennedy, I point out I wasn't the strategist. You weren't the (laughs) strategist either. So tell me how you progressed. How did you make your way to the point where you were running national campaigns?
2: Well, I started off by being a grassroots organizer. I went door to door. I did voter registration. Uh, I also signed people up to work the precincts. Uh, I also handed out leaflets in the 1976 race with, uh, Jimmy Carter. By 1978, I was working for the, uh, the state attorney general, uh, candidate. And by 1980, I was at LSU and I was the uh, youth coordinator. I finally turned 18. I was a youth <laughs> coordinator for the Carter Mondale campaign. And by 1982, when I was up in Washington, D.C., I worked with Someone you probably uh, knew very well, Paul Tully. Of course. Paul yes. was my a mentor. legend The legendary. He, yeah. Paul Tully was one of the, the, the finest strategists and organizers yeah. in the country. Paul Tully hired me. I was an intern <laughs> at the DNC. And by 1984, after finishing the campaign to um, uh, make Dr. King's birthday a holiday, I worked on that. Harold Washington. You were Rick.
1: recruited for that. Uh, I was
2: recruited by Mrs. King. Because as a student organizer, I worked for the uh, United States Student Association, and I had organized students on over 200 college campuses to produce 7 million petitions. And as a result of our organizing, I I started off as the youth coordinator. Everyone hired me to be a a youth coordinator because I was young. Uh, And then I ended up being the national mobilization director for the King Holiday Effort.
1: And how did you come to know her? I mean, obviously through this process, but what was your relationship with her?
2: Well, I got to—I I met Ralph Abernathy on the campus of uh, LSU. Dr. Uh,
1: King's colleague and, and successor as chair uh, of the a Southern a Leadership ship, uh Christian SELC. As, yeah. Uh,
2: and, I, and one by one, uh, C.T. Vivian, Dr. Uh, Dr. Abernathy, um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Hooks. I got to know—and then, of course, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Um, Stevie Wonder, uh, was, um, behind the quote unquote, the major campaigns, the big marches. And Teresa Cropper, who's based here in Chicago, a lawyer, she, uh, called upon me. She was the coordinator. She called upon me to organize more campuses. So by 1983, I became a quote unquote, I became a famous organizer because I had worked on the King holiday effort. And then I went directly to work for Jesse Jackson, historic first campaign.
1: Mm hmm. Uh um, it really was historic. what was that like? Because that campaign spawned a lot of careers in politics. A lot of young African American candidates surfaced and challenged some old line politicians Career around the politicians
2: country. that's right it was It was a great campaign because we didn't have a playbook. <laughs> We we basically got up every morning, looked in the New York Times and the Washington Post and we found out where Reverend was going. Um <laughs> and then uh we had to uh That's
1: an unsettling feeling when you're working for a candidate. When
2: you're working for I mean nowadays you know two weeks in advance where the candidate is gone. We knew a, we knew the morning of. Um we went where the votes were. Um Reverend taught us how to, you know, increase the number of African Americans. Uh, running for office, running for delegates, as well as voter registration. Our campaign really was about citizen mobilization. And the reason why I love that campaign is because uh, I would often go into states like Virginia, Georgia, Alabama. Of course, I did Louisiana. And uh, I would find the preachers that Reverend knew, preachers that were uh, involved in the civil rights movement. I would go to the church. Uh, We would record radio spots down the basement of the church. Uh, And then we would just reach out to the people that were affiliated with that church, um, go to to their homes, and then we would hold community meetings. And one by one, uh, you know, because back then the rules were the Democratic Party had— Uh, the so-called winner-take-all systems, similar to what the Republicans continue to have. And we look for places where we could win and take all of the delegates as opposed to where we can just cherry-pick and get a few delegates. So Reverend put me in charge of that operation along with the field operation. And I got to understand a little bit more about politics. And when the election, when when Reverend dropped out of the race at the convention, I also had to go at the convention and get signatures to get Reverend Jackson uh, an opportunity to speak on the platform and speak at the yeah, convention. which she
1: which she did to great effect. that was a yeah, la- landmark speech for him th-
2: that was a great speech. Um, and then the Mondale campaign hired me.
1: Now, let me ask you a question. Um, what what did it did you see the uh, Jackson campaign as a essentially political exercise, or did you see it as an extension of of the civil rights movement? Uh, or both? I mean, I guess it could be both.
2: It was both. Uh, it had elements of a political campaign in a sense that we had to get on the ballot. Uh, we had to uh, identify and recruit delegates. Uh, but at the same time, it was like an old civil rights revival, Going across the country, uh, getting people in Fayetteville, getting people in Jackson, getting people who have been on the front lines of the civil rights movement to come out and, and serve as not just surrogates for the campaign, but also... To, to help Reverend Jackson raise awareness on the right to vote. Back in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, black voter registration was about 40, 40, 40, 40 to forty five percent. It's now increased to almost sixty five to seventy percent of African Americans are registered to vote. And I think as a result of Reverend Jackson's campaign more and more uh, African-Americans decided that they wanted to run for office. And what we saw uh, post-1988 was a shift in in thinking in terms of how to increase black uh, voter mobilization, but also black electoral participation through running for office.
1: And you, off of that experience, then you sort of, Paul Tully, obviously, yeah. was right in the thick of uh, national Democratic politics. So you you made the shift over to uh, Mondale in in 84 after Jackson dropped out of the race.
2: That's right. Uh, mondale Ferraro campaign. Uh, I worked with a a wonderful woman uh, by the name of uh, Gina Glantz. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gina was another mentor. She was the field director. And Gina assigned me uh, to stay in the headquarters and to help out with mobilization across the country. In fact, I, I also served as an advanced person for Geraldine Ferraro. And I went around the country helping her with her events as well. So I got a chance to learn uh, not just about politics, message, uh, mobilization, but also as an advanced person, I became very good at logistics.
1: Yeah. Uh, Geraldine, another histo- you were involved in a lot of historic races yes. at that moment, uh, Reverend Jackson's and, and hers. Uh, right. what, w- what was she like to work with? First woman nominated for uh, for a national office.
2: Well, in between the nineteen eighty two midterm and the eighty four cycle, I served as an intern on Capitol Hill for Gillis Long, who was the uh, rep from from Louisiana. Louisiana yeah. But he was a chair of the House Democratic Caucus, so yeah. I got a chance to see all of the major players. In the Democratic Party, from, uh, uh, Tip O'Neill, the speaker, to Jerry Ferraro, to Bella Abzug, Mm -hmm. Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan. I mean, think about it. Back in those days, they um, they were giants. Yeah. I mean, everyone wanted to, to get to meet these, uh, wonderful, uh, charismatic leaders. Jerry was, um, this woman from Queens. I mean, she was smart, dynamic, um, she was uh she understood how the house worked, and I wasn't surprised that Mondale chose her. remember that was a year that Mondale uh interviewed several women, including Diane Feinstein and uh uh barbara Mikulski, uh Lindy Boggs, who was my hometown congresswoman but Jerry stood out uh because she was such. Um, such a great leader, and she understood politics. She's a great
1: politician. She was a
2: great politician, and I think the the Mondale campaign, the effort was to try to bring home some of those so called Reagan Democrats. If you recall the Reagan the, those I, years when Democrat yes. the Democrats would lose to uh, Republicans, and we lost a substantial number of white male voters and others.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and and uh, you you ended up moving on. Your I guess your next big. Uh, posting was with Dick Gephardt.
2: Yep. Uh, uh, in between those campaigns, I, I worked on the midterms in 1986. We made up some ground, uh, in the, in the house and the Senate, but not enough. I mean, we still held, held the house, but we made up ground in the Senate. And then by 1988, I was down in Louisiana running Mary Landrew's first statewide campaign. She wanted; to, she ran for state treasurer. Ann Richards of Texas had convinced her to run statewide, and I went home to run her campaign. You uh, must
1: have known her dad, Moon Landrew. I was mayor, an intern for Moon ma- Landrew, mayor of. Uh, yeah, you're like Zelig. You show up everywhere. Well, i i, <laughs> I had this
2: I had this drive, this passion to serve. Uh, a passion to give back, and more importantly, and you recall this David, because of you know you grew up around the same era, people were actively engaged in their democracy, yeah, and for young people uh back during those days, there was no greater calling than to to hear from a politician or, or a political leader that they wanted someone of my age to help them, and I was you know I was in- by these people. Yeah, well,
1: Moon Landrew was a was an exceptional figure. I mean, he was he a larger than life character.
2: And and also, you know, and I and I'll see um, I'll see the mayor when um, or the secretary depends on yeah. what day it is. I call him yeah. Mayor Landrew or Secretary. He was Secretary yeah. of
1: Hud under President Jimmy Carter. Carter. Yeah.
2: But most people don't know that he was one of the <laughs> the first white downtown lawyers. To fight for integration.
1: You know, we had Mitch Landrew on this podcast, and he talked about that and his yeah. father's role and, and, and how that impacted on him.
2: Civil rights. He was one of the first um, white lawyers to handle civil rights cases down in the South. And he was good friends with uh, uh, Norm Francis, who just retired as president of Xavier University. Everyone knew that Moon Landrew. Cared. He cared about the the folks in in the ninth ward, and of course he cared about downtown New Orleans. And here I was living out in Canada, which is about twenty miles to the west. And every day I called a bus uh, from from my home in Canada all the way downtown to be his intern. What a great opportunity!
1: And so you worked for Mary when she ran state. I ran
2: because Mary and Mitch are like part of my family. Uh, I ran her campaign, and when I got a call from Dick Gephardt, I heard from Paul Simon, Michael Dukakis, Joe Biden, and Dick Gephardt. I met with all of them, and I decided upon Dick Gephardt. And i before tell you,
1: before you get to Gephardt because I want to hear about that. But as long as you've uh, 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 outed yourself as a member of the Landrew family, yeah, well, uh, yeah. are you uh, are you giving uh, Mitch any advice on whether he should look at the presidential race?
2: Well, I try to, I try to stay away from giving candidates advice or potential candidates advice, but if he calls me, I, I will make myself available to talk to him. <laughs> but I would make myself available to talk to anyone. What do you think of him as a potential candidate? Um, I, I think along with Mayor Garcetti, uh, Mayor de Blasio, I think we're going to see a, a, a fair, A good number of Democratic mayors running for president in 2020. It
1: used to be that that candidacies would come out of the state houses, out of governorships. There aren't that many Democratic governors uh, these days. It elevates these mayors who... Govern in a very pragmatic way.
2: Especially and, in in states like Louisiana and, and New York and other places. But as you well know, we also have a, a handful of governors who are thinking about yes. 2020. I think
1: it's fair to say, and I've said it before, that it'd be easier to construct a list of those Democrats who aren't going to run for president than the, a list of. I mean, that would be a shorter list. Than I'm, the I'm number at of people 51. Who, yeah.
2: 51. And maybe by the end of the day, we'll be at 52.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll. we'll uh, Maybe you'll jump in there. Oh, no. Gephardt. So we were not Gephardt. Yeah.
2: Well, I... I Gephardt,
1: Dick Gephardt, at the time you uh, met, was what uh, was a ranking leader. Democrat. But he, was, he, he wasn't the leader of the House No. Yet.
2: He was he was on that trajectory to becoming a leader of the party. And what I liked about Gephardt, I met with all of them. And Dick Gephardt was the first candidate, and, in, in, you know, I was 27 at the time, who... When talking with him, because I would interview the candidates, and when talking with him, Dick Gephardt asked me a series of questions, and I and I was struck by the fact that he wanted my views on trade policy, he wanted my views on economic policy, on defense policy. He was the first candidate didn't, that didn't ask me about organizing in the black community or doing outreach to women. He wanted to know my views on public policy issues, and I was impressed that Dick Gephardt wanted to know my personal views. And it was we had an enjoyable because you, it's conversation. It's easy to get
1: pigeonholed. Yeah. In a role, oh yeah, this is our, this yeah. is our black, yeah. person. This is our black uh, yeah. organizer.
2: Yeah, this is this is the person who can help me with all of the other candidates wanted me to uh, come on board to either serve as their uh, director of black outreach or uh, southern outreach, which also meant black outreach. That was just a, a glorified way of saying black outreach. It's like we'll put you in charge of the south, really. <laughs> but Dick Gephardt, Dick Gephardt said. I would like you to be my deputy campaign manager, number two under Bill Carrick. And I went home, and I'm like, wow, this is my opportunity. I'm 27 years old, and I'll I'll get the opportunity to be the deputy field director, uh, deputy campaign manager, and I can start hiring people like myself to go out and work in the various states. My my hardest uh, decision, uh, David, was to tell Reverend Jackson yeah, so who's running tell, again
1: in nineteen eighty? Yeah,
2: and how do you tell Reverend Jackson I'm moving on? So I finally got. How the did cover- you tell him? Oh my God! I drove all the way up to Memphis. He was in Memphis. He was having a big retreat, and I'll, I, I called Ron Walters, who was like his right hand, uh, Professor Ron Walters, mm-hmm. and I said, "I need to c- come and have a one-on-one conversation with Reverend." I'm twenty-seven years old, and I went into his room and I said, Reverend. I have to tell you, I have some news. And he and he was immediately went to the states. He wanted me to run the things he wanted me to do, and I said, "I will not be with your campaign this year. I'm going to work for Dick Gephardt, And he said, "Who?" <laughs> I said, "Dick Gephardt, you know, the congressman from Missouri." That
1: immediately price signified to you that you had uh, some work to do for Gephardt there. The fact that Jackson couldn't uh, he identify said him.
2: who, and I'm not forget, and and you know. Uh, Reverend Jackson told me, and I wrote this in my first book, "Cooking with Grease." Reverend told me that I would become a branch without a tree, and I was like, "Oh, Reverend, that's horrible! I mean, <laughs> I, I want to be stay rooted with the with the civil rights community. I want to continue to work with you know civil rights advocates, which I did. But Reverend told me I would become a branch without a tree. And you know what? We maintained contact throughout that campaign. When the campaign was over with, we continued to talk to one another. And when I became a campaign manager for Al Gore in 2000, Reverend Jackson called me every day to check on me, to see what I needed. He wanted to make sure um, I was doing okay. Uh, I have the greatest admiration for Reverend Jackson, for not only giving a kid like myself an opportunity to serve, but just the the friendship that we've had over the years. I talked to him uh, last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the funeral of his mother-in-law. I feel like i'm I will always be one of Reverend Jackson's, you know, staffers. so it turns
1: out that the tree and branch stayed together, huh? Oh
2: yeah, well, we got deep roots. We're going take and a I short, love miss j too.
1: We're going to take a uh, a short break and we'll be right back with Donna Brazil. So 88, you know I know I know something about that race because Paul Simon was my first uh, political client when I left journalism, The former he was the a congressman, he got elected to the Senate in 2000, in I'm sorry, 1984, and then he right. decided to run for president in 88 and he and Gephardt had quite a contest. Mm in Iowa. Yeah. And right down to the last minute, to the day he died, Simon believes that he won the Iowa caucuses if they just counted all all the votes and he was... Well,
2: we knew you know, that, yeah. that Simon would take the eastern uh, counties, Davenport, etc. Neighboring we,
1: Illinois.
2: Yeah, neighboring Illinois. but
1: Gapart was also neighboring uh, it, it, Iowa. With
2: Missouri. But we knew that we had the western counties and our targets were really everything north of Des Moines. Uh, and we were in a really good campaign in 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 our uh, yeah. Steve, uh julie Gibson it was a it we had an aggressive campaign we also around had the issue of
1: uh, interestingly around trade was trade the issue was the that issue. Uh, that Absolutely. really drove the vote for him there
2: right and i'll never forget that's what that was the big question that Gephardt asked me about trade and I'm like. How? I mean, I never had anyone, you know, like I said, seek out my advice and my opinions. His slogan
1: in that campaign was, it's your fight,
2: too. It's your fight, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting, because we're still having these same... Same battles. Same debates today. I honestly believe that, uh, uh, you know, Gephardt, uh, ultimately Michael Dukakis won the nomination. Fine guy. Um, Gephardt was very skilled politically, and that appeal around that issue was strong. Yes. He didn't have the resources to continue that campaign. He he was he was really mowed under by uh, the absence of resources.
2: Absence of resources. And also when Gore and Gephardt went after it for Super Tuesday in many of those southern states, Dukakis emerged. Dukakis and Jackson emerged much stronger. But we essentially killed each other killed each other off that's our political way of saying that we ran out of money I'll never forget I was in a I was on an airplane with Terry McAuliffe who uh, was our finance director back then and I was talking to Paul Begala who was already on the ground and we're like we got to go and tell Dick we we, there's no way to continue and we went down to South Carolina to say it's time for us to fold our tent one month later I was up in Boston working to help Michael Dukakis
1: it it uh it must have been persuasive to get part for Terry McAuliffe to say we can't raise the money mr. <laughs> ebulence he was he was here recently yeah uh, must have been a pretty uh, strong message oh uh,
2: I, I remember when Terry was uh, at the D Triple C raising money and did that alligator wrestling so I mean Terry and I go back also it's funny in in, in this business you with 40 plus years of service you 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 really know everybody, both Republicans and Democrats who've been on the battlefield for as long as well, we have. Well, you and
1: I have known each other for a long time. We met uh, during—you were running Eleanor Holmes Norton's campaign for Congress yeah. in 1990, and I was involved in that. Uh, I, want, in that I
2: wanted the best for uh, my mentor and yes, friend. Yes, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, David, you know, and this is a great story because I searched around. I knew a lot of people, as you well uh, know. And I searched around for someone who understood the nuances of city politics, black politics, uh, gender equality. I mean, you had you had a mix of Well, everything. I was lucky
1: because um, I came up in Chicago yeah. at a very interesting, turbulent time and ended up working, when I left journalism, working with Harold Washington, Washington. Uh, right. the first African-American mayor of Chicago, who was a... Larger than life, and and I ended up doing many, many urban races after that because I think it's the most vital kind of politics there is. Actually, it's where the rubber hits the road. You know, it's where these life and death issues. uh, But you knew
2: how to raise issues that didn't turn off suburban voters. When in our case we didn't have any suburban voters, but But you knew how to. you know, bring people from you know, say Ward Eight in Washington D.C. together with a Ward Three, which is predominantly white. Ward Eight, predominantly black. When they saw your ads, David, they didn't think black or white. They right. thought D.C. D.C. So I want to applaud you for that. And Eleanor is still serving. Yeah. So twenty-two terms later, Eleanor is still <laughs> <laughs> she's still serving.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, and and then you, I know, I want to get to Gore. Yeah. Uh, Because that was a historic appointment that he made when you uh, became—talk about your role in the Clinton years.
2: During the Clinton years, uh, the one thing I enjoyed working with Eleanor and then Gephardt is that every two years, they they allowed me to take a leave of absence. I used to call it my fix. I had to go out and get a fix. And because I love politics and I love to recruit young people to run— and I like to train people, and I like to go out and be with the people. I don't like to sit in the campaign headquarters. And so in, in 92, I know, I'll know never forget this, Tully, uh, Paul, Paul Tully. Call, he called me. He was down in Little Rock. He said, I need you to come down to Little Rock. And I said, you know what, I'm putting curtains up. That was a metaphor that <laughs> I was finally buying a house. I needed to stabilize my life. I lived out of a suitcase. And I said, I'm putting curtains up. As soon as my curtains go up, I will go around the country. You tell me wherever you need me to go. And there are a few of us in politics. I can think about Teresa Valmain. I mentioned yeah. Julie Gibson, Michael Hooley. Mm-hmm. We're the kind of people you call in. When you have a crisis yes. and you need folks to go and fix it, the
1: Marines. It.
2: Yeah, we yes. and we like the trenches. We yeah. are we are trench fighters. Yeah, and uh, Lori Moskowitz. Now you're making me call up all my friends. And and so I I did I think I did like five or six states for the Clintons, uh, for Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, but I was close to Al Gore. You see. I wasn't close to Bill Clinton. I was co- close to Al Gore, and as a result Because that, you
1: both were from the South? We were,
2: we were from the South, but there was something about— when I turned Gore down, because Gore had requested that I work for him, but I still kept a relationship with him. I don't know, I just—
1: This was in 88. He also ran in 88. He, he was 39 years old. Then yeah, yeah, president. and
2: so we became friends, and um, uh, I was friends with Tippa and so I was close to the Gores, and so uh, when he called me— uh, to help out, I helped out. So I, I didn't have a formal role other than that of being a senior advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't on the payroll for them. I was on the payroll of the DNC at the time, uh, when I took my leave of absence. I used to tell people I'll take a leave of absence and I need $1,500 a month. <clears throat> Do you know I said that back in 1992? And that was my going price, uh, you know, for the last few years, 1500 a month. I said, if you can't live off of $1,500 a month, which I call two shifts at some, you know, uh, minimum wage job, then you can't survive.
1: And uh, in 2000, you, Gore's campaign was uh, not going particularly well right. uh, against uh, ultimately George W. Bush. But there was... So he had a primary. He overcame Bill Bradley in the primary. I think the aforementioned Gina Glantz may have yeah, been involved with there. Bradley yes, in that was. campaign. But you, um, uh, at, at one point, he made a dramatic turn in his campaign. He appointed you as as campaign manager and moved the whole campaign out of Washington D.C. to Nashville. To Nashville. What, what was the thinking behind that?
2: Well, uh, the 98 season was, in 96 I helped uh, with the reelect. I actually ran the tri-state area in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., and I traveled across the country to battleground states as a surrogate. In nineteen ninety eight, few people uh remember this. Bill Clinton was under impeachment. It was a big scandal. I think a lot of people remember that actually. <laughs> it, it was a big scandal in Washington DC. And that year I, I just I w I didn't want to work. I, I said this is gonna be a messy one. And Charlie <laughs> Ringo came to uh came over to the office one day. Congressman from New York. The for former congressman time, yeah. from New York and he said to Eleanor, uh he said, We need Don over the D C. Because every two years I went over for fifteen hundred a month. Yes, and I said, "Oh my God, this is going to be a bad one because the president's being impeached, uh, the resources were drying up, and they're like, you know how to do it." And I went over to work with the DCCC and the DSCC, and we came within five seats of winning back the House. Yeah. And people forget how we ran that race. We went underneath all of the national noise, and we went into what I call the the down ballot races.
1: Yeah, that was extraordinary because with everything going on, uh, and you know, presidents in their sixth year. Generally don't have very good midterm elections. That's
2: right. That's yeah. right. And so I came out of 98 pretty uh, after New Gingrich stepped down, and then my former uh, congressman, Bob Livingston, came in and stepped down. Uh, yeah. And uh, Gore called me that March of 19, uh, 1999 and said, I need you to be my deputy. And I guess at, th- at that point in my career, being, you know, uh, 38, Uh, Being deputy was not such a bad position, and I knew Craig Smith, the campaign manager, but by September of that year, the campaign was hemorrhaging money, Uh, we had a big bloated uh, budget, and... um, the vice president felt that he wanted someone else in that position who would focus on grassroots. He was afraid that uh, Bill Bradley, who was running against the establishment, remember, it sounds familiar, right, the, yeah. the establishment candidates running yeah, against
1: establishment. It's, yeah, it's a theme running through our politics for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah.
2: And so Bill Bradley, uh, Gore was afraid that Bradley was going to catch up, and he wanted to ch- you know, get the campaign outside the beltway. Uh, he wanted to get it out of the quote-unquote Clinton-Gore, I mean the D.C. orbit, and he chose me to be his campaign manager. I'll never forget, I called my dad that day. I thought it was, you know, and he said, guess what? Al Gore just appointed me as campaign manager, and my dad said, well, it's just a job. It's <laughs> oh, that's just a, a, job.
1: That's a That's deflating.
2: Yeah, just Probably a job.
1: in certain ways— also, a good message, though, which is, you know, we tend to define ourselves by what we do, right? Instead of who we are. Who we are. So, and my
2: dad, and so I had to take the staff down to Tennessee. I had to uh, refill the coffers. We were, you know, bleating money. Uh, I had to take a lot of the consultants off the payroll, which the same thing I did at the DNC, so we can come on the budget. And then I had to shift the focus to winning Iowa, New Hampshire, because I felt I felt like if we won Iowa, New Hampshire, then the rest the rest of the states, at least those Super Tuesday states, I thought that Al Gore would be in a better position of winning those states because many of them were in the South. And you did so that do was that, my strategy. You, and
1: you did do that, uh, and you and, won br- those and Bradley, two. And uh...
2: Bradley dropped out. The second week of March, and Al Gore came over to me, and I'll never forget when he said, "Well, how did we win in Washington State? How did we win in Delaware?" I said, "Because while the consultants were telling me don't fund those races, I knew what to do. I knew how to do grassroots organizing, and we won all of the delegates."
1: So we we should, before we move on, we should talk about the way that race ended, which was historic, uh, and and uh, painful for you, I'm sure, mm. uh, the longest vote count in the history of presidential 37 politics. Thirty-seven days. You may, talk to me a little bit about that night when uh, mm. when uh, the votes were coming in.
2: Well, I mean, I had my—that morning, uh, we were in Florida the night before in Dade County. We left Broward, went to Dade. Uh, And we were going to campaign all night. You you remember those all nighters we used to pull? God, I can't do those anymore. And we ended up in St. Pete, uh, Tampa, St. Pete, Hillsborough County. And I started getting phone calls. I'm like, wow, it's too early to get phone calls that the polls are not open up. People uh, have not, their name had been removed from the ballot. I kept – that entire day I called up to the Justice Department, Mr. Lee, and I said something is going on in this country because I'm hearing from a lot of states that people's names have been removed from the roster and they're standing in long lines. I heard later that day from uh, Leon County, which is Tallahassee, that there were problems. So by the end of the day, we, we, we went back to Nashville, Tennessee, And I started receiving more phone calls, uh, once we got to Nashville, but the polls were closing across the country, starting in Virginia, going all the way through. And as you know, David, the first hour, uh, the news media reported that we won. Right. I went up and took a shower and, like, game over. We won Florida. Game over. Uh, came out of the shower. I was about to go and grab some popcorn. That is my, you know, celebration snack. You walked in with some today. I know. I got a. I <laughs> love popcorn, uh, and red wine and popcorn are my 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 favorite meal. Um, and I I got out the shower. I was so happy, and then within an hour, uh, I was up in in the vice president suite. We were looking at the TV, and I'm like, "What the hell just happened?" One hour ago, we won Florida, and now. We were losing Florida. And as you can imagine, up until midnight, uh, with Bill Daley in the room, the vice president around 945 uh, called, called George Bush. I was angry with him. I said, don't call, don't concede, don't concede, because if, if this falls within 1,000 votes, there's going to be an automatic recount. And uh, we went over to the War Memorial, and Michael Hooley got a call, and that we got it up to Al Gore. Uh, that
1: They were in a motorcade at the we time. We were
2: in a motorcade. And we had already told George Bush, well, the vice president told uh, uh, then Governor Bush uh, that he had conceded. We were at the war memorial where we were hosting our victory party, and, and the vice president had to call again. I'll never forget that call because the vice president, in essence, said, I don't care what your brother said. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there you go. Just, <laughs> you know. Tell them you're not going to you know, throw in the towel tonight. So in the middle of the night— and He said
1: your little brothers." what <laughs> was reported, but— Your yeah, little brother, right. Jeb Bush was the governor at the time. He was
2: the governor of Florida. Catherine Harris was the secretary right. of state. And we spent the rest of that evening debating internally, should we uh, go for a statewide count or four counties? I argued as the, one of the non-lawyers in the room for a statewide count because I'd heard— throughout the day from people in Duval, Volusia, uh, Leon County. I mean, I had enough counties in my head that I said, it needs to be statewide. But there were people, uh, and I would say the legal team, they wanted four counties. And I'm like, that's a mistake.
1: Well, it's it, it strategically it became a mistake because it allowed this notion of selective yeah, recount. Yeah,
2: like we were cherry-picking our counties right, as yeah. opposed to the entire state. That was the we longest. Just were, I
1: spent some time with Jim Baker a few yeah. And, and he was brilliant at exploiting those those uh, strategic opportunities.
2: And you might recall, right right as we got to December tenth, that there was uh, um, the Florida Supreme Court said that we would count the, that all the counties would be you know uh, finally um, you know re-polled. and then the next day, as you remember, the Supreme the Court U.S. Supreme Court knocked ended,
1: down and ended, ended that. And what was longest. that like? What
2: was that like for you? Uh, having oh.
1: having gone through that experience, brutal,
2: brutal. I mean, the body at the end of any campaign cycle, like, oh, right. the body is tired. Yes. I mean, but my body was tired, my mind was tired, and then um, when I read the Supreme Court decision, I don't think I ever got rid of the anger in my heart. I mean, they use old civil rights statues to essentially shut down the right to vote. In essence, uh, Justice Scalia, former justice, the late uh, Justice Scalia said, we have no right to vote. It's not enshrined in our constitution. And when you read that and, and know what we went through to try to get, you know, Al Gore elected by talking to people, by getting them out to vote, by ensuring that they had, you know, all of the proper credentials. When you read that, you just sit back and say, my God, there's no right to vote.
1: What do you think that 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 election, what role did that play in the political environment that we have today? It seems like that was a kind of watershed uh, event.
2: Uh I think if you go back to the 2000 election and you see ultimately how the Supreme Court ruled in favor of George W. Bush, that we did not have a thorough recount of the entire electorate in the state of Florida I think that deepened some of the polarization that was already out there. Look, the the impeachment uh, process was another flashpoint, uh, and this widening divide between the two political parties. And clearly 2016 will be another chapter of this quote-unquote hyper-partisanship at its worst.
1: It does speak to, and I say this all the time when I'm traveling around uh, the The value of the vote, though I mean it was what five hundred and twenty nine votes or something uh like that that separated the two of them, which means that if another thousand people had voted uh, that uh Gore would have prevailed, and uh history would have been much different, very likely we wouldn't have been involved in Iraq, we probably would have been way down the road on. Climate change, right. things would have been different, yeah. uh, in a in a really big way. So when people say, "Well, my vote doesn't really matter,"
2: every vote matters. I mean, you look at some of these races uh, just this past week. There are still recounts in Virginia. Uh, some of the military ballots are uh, people are. Uh, questioning and challenging whether all of the overseas ballots that as you know they come in a little later yeah. some of them
1: i've actually been out of the country have they and there is the control of the house of delegates still in question there are
2: three seats that are still being uh as we uh, as we speak there's that are still being tallied one of the seats by 12 votes yeah 12 votes yeah. so every vote matters yeah. Every election matter. And we proved that this past week when you saw Democrats for the first time compete in all 100 districts. And in the last two cycles, we've only had less than 50 Democrats. I mean, Democrats had given up on Loudoun County. Democrats had given up on Southwest Virginia. And this past election cycle, Democrats were running all across the state of Virginia. I'm so proud of them.
1: And you are seeing all over the country this yes. explosion of candidates uh, lining up uh, for offices up and down the ballot. A lot of women. Yeah. A lot a lo- of women. And a lot of women won in Virginia. Yes. It's going to yeah. change the— and
2: Women of color. We We well- now have two Latinas uh and one asian american woman in fact when i went out to canvas uh this is in virginia virginia yeah. yeah you know david at my age i i have to ask myself what the hell am i doing i get up <laughs> early in the morning I, I flew down from boston where i'm at harvard you're uh, younger than me i wish you wouldn't harp on this so all much all right but, well okay just by uh, go day ahead. <laughs> uh and and i and I get to Northern Virginia first of all, I have to put my g p s on because i don 't know what this place is and um and I get there and I looked at this large crowd of canvases, and I said, "This is the place to be I mean a lot of young people, a lot of energy. And Kathy Tran, who worked in the Obama administration, she was undersecretary at Labor, she ran. And she won. She flipped that seat. I'm so proud that I got up and went out there and and campaigned for her. I raised money for Justin Fairfax. I raised money for the Virginia Democratic Party. I mean I felt good about Justin our Fairfax chances.
1: Uh, was elected Lieutenant Governor. Lieutenant Governor. You said that you uh you knew him way back when.
2: He was one of my he was one of my hires in the Gore campaign. He was uh he worked uh for Tip of Gore. He was one of her briefers. Meaning he wrote the talking points. Right. Young, good guy. He's going to be a great Lieutenant Governor.
1: One of the Doug Wilder obviously been Lieutenant Governor and Governor, but uh, since right. then uh this is really uh the first African American statewide yeah. since nineteen eighty nine
2: when yeah. Doug Wilder. So it's yeah. a big it was a big night for African Americans. Especially if you look at the results in uh uh North Carolina. We the first black female mayor now of uh, Viagles and, and the great city of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Uh we also saw a tremendous amount of uh uh, voter turnout in places like Maine, where in off season elections turnout, you know, drops 20, 30, They had a
1: thing on, they had an issue on the ballot as to whether McH- uh, Maine would, uh, expand the Medicaid, Medicaid. in accordance with the ACA. People. And uh, one overwhelmingly, uh, over. Healthcare was Overturned the number the one issue. Overturned the decision of the re- governor up there, Paula Payne.
2: Yeah. I was proud. I mean, we, we now have a black female who's lieutenant governor of the state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was a good night for not just Democrats. It was a good night for democracy because we didn't have a lot of problems at the ballot box.
1: I'm going to take a short break and uh, uh, speak to you about uh, the last election, about which I, I, I would guess you're a little less enthusiastic. So. <laughs> yes. I mentioned at the beginning that you're a big newsmaker. Uh, you have uh, uh, you have written your book about your experience in 2016 uh, and uh, called Hacks. I got to make sure I get the subtitle uh, <laughs> right. Tell me, read you, you've got your book the, in front of you. The
2: inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. Yeah. Good marketing, by the way. That's a that and you have
1: uh, you've created quite a stir uh, about your experiences within the Democratic National Committee and your observations about the uh, about the Clinton campaign. So I I I'd be I, I would be drawn and quartered if I did not go through this with you uh, and understand exactly what you're saying. Because, you know, one of my reactions to what I— and I just saw the the press accounts initially. One Mm -hmm. of my reactions was, yeah, I mean, I think it was widely understood that the Democratic establishment was lined up with Hillary Clinton and that there were certain decisions made, for example, the timing of debates that seemed to be made in her favor, right. you're, what you're you're saying is that you think it went deeper than that.
2: Well, um, first of all, I became chair of the Democratic National Committee for the second time, um, as a result. The second time, as a result of the hacking that took place uh, on July 24th, when um, uh, I was on national television talking about what was going on with the emails that had been leaked through Guccifer 2.0. I had no idea at the time uh, that the DNC was under a cyber threat uh, from the Russians. And so when I became chair that afternoon, I began to look into what was happening at the DNC. And I promised Bernie Sanders that I would figure out if anything had, uh, if the campaign, if the primary was rigged. It took me a few weeks to uh, do a a real forensic uh, examination of what was going on at the party. Although I was an officer uh, during those uh, years, um, I was not a, quote-unquote, DNC staffer. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is the chair of the party, the chair has the fiduciary responsibility to carrying out all of the, uh, quote-unquote, programs and uh, and implementing the... the, uh, Uh, the day-to-day operations of the party. What I learned uh, within a few weeks as chair disturbed me uh, so badly that I felt compelled to call Senator Sanders and report back on what I learned uh, and also try to address it. Uh, What I learned was that uh, in addition to the standard joint fundraising agreement that we've had in place since the Two thousand four, when John Kerry became the nominee, there was a memorandum. That is,
1: those are those are agreements between the campaigns, the DNC that allow for joint fundraising. Correct. That some of the money goes to the DNC, some goes to the candidate.
2: Some goes to the candidate, but most of it goes to state parties mm-hmm. uh, and helping to uh, manage uh, the, you know, whether it's it's. Ed buying or staffing Mm -hmm. in various states. This was not the standard joint fundraising agreement whereby a candidate would, in exchange for raising money, uh, would begin to open up offices in in the so-called battleground states. The memorandum went beyond uh, just simply giving the DNC resources uh, in exchange for bailing the DNC out, which was broke. Uh, the Clinton campaign would assume control over three divisions of the party. Uh, one was research. I found no evidence in the research department that they were doing anything but research in Donald Trump and the Republicans. So I came away convinced that the research department was okay. Um, then I looked at technology, and given the fact that we were being hacked and our data and emails and everything else was stolen, I found no evidence, again, of any uh, nefarious activity that could have impacted the primaries. But then um, I went to comms, to communications. And once again, I didn't see any evidence, but then I began to look beyond just uh, press releases, and I became very alarmed. And so while I have said that I did not find any rigging of the primary, meaning the scheduling of the primary dates or uh, the vote count, uh, what I did find uh, concerned me a lot, and I call it unethical. It's unethical for well, any why, campaign. Well, tell
1: me, tell me why it concerned you, and how you think it impacted on the campaign.
2: The DNC should should be independent of any campaign uh, during an election cycle. Like, I'll never forget when I was uh, when I was elevated to become uh, the campaign manager. Bill Bradley requested and i agreed to step aside as being uh, the co-chair of the rules and bylaws committee i was al gore's campaign manager i mean the last thing you want to do is have the campaign manager tip the scales or at least you know even do you if i if wasn't You think if these arrangements the hadn't
1: existed that bernie sanders would have been the nominee of the no. party? um the other question i had was but,
2: but it did impact my ability to do my job as chair of the party and the arrangements that that uh, debbie's I I assume that Debbie knew what she was signing up to. This arrangement uh, gave the Clinton campaign an unfair advantage of controlling the DNC money before she assumed the nomination, and that you should never do.
1: Mm -hmm. But again, you don't think that's what that that would not have changed the. I don't
2: think that would change one vote because. She received more than 4 million votes. She won three out of the first four contests. She won the majority of pledged delegates. She won the majority of states. No, uh, she won 9 out of 10 African Americans. And if you know anything about Super Tuesday, many of those states were in the South. I mean, she clearly uh, understood the electorate, and I believe that's why she won, um, you know, 4 million more votes than Bernie Sanders. But Bernie ran a very energetic campaign he brought a lot of new people into the process he ran against not just the democratic party establishment but the but the establishment overall and i think i wanted the supporters of the sanders campaign just like i wanted the clinton supporters to understand what uh what was happening and what we did with their resources the
1: uh uh, just one more question on on this whole uh, piece of this and that is you came under some uh Attack. And it, in fact, it cost you some media jobs mm-hmm. uh, because of one of the leaks that came out of this WikiLeaks mm-hmm. tranche that was stolen from the Democratic National uh, Committee. And it was uh, e- e- an email, or I don't know if there were several, uh, suggesting that uh, you were giving sort of uh, – you were in the baseball term would be stealing signs, but essentially giving, giving Hillary a sense of what pitches were going to come in these debates. Um, tell me exactly what happened and, um, and why, why did you, because you obviously did have this concern that there not be a sense of unfairness yeah. in the process.
2: Well, you know, um, here's what I did. I, wor- I worked behind the scenes as, as the vice chair. I mean, I was concerned that we were being attacked, the Democratic National Committee was being attacked, not just by Bernie, but the other candidates for uh, hosting only six debates. You recall the Republicans seemed like they were having a debate every other night. And we were under a lot of pressure to increase the number of debates, town halls uh, and other forums to give both candidates at that point, uh, had uh, both candidates an opportunity to get their message out. So when I worked very closely with my colleagues at CNN, because I, I wore a couple hats, David, let's, yeah. let's be honest. I, 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 up until that point, I, I wore a couple hats. I
1: enjoyed sitting on panels with you at CNN. And if
2: you recall, uh, we used to say the, the, the adults are over there, and yes. you sat with the adults, and we were the <laughs> unruly teenagers. So I told you I was older. Yeah, well, that, that's a good point, because <laughs> I I was hired uh, as a TV commentator uh because pundits are, we are hired because we have a point of view. Yes. And yeah. um, CNN understood that I was an officer. CNN also understood that if I went on some nights and they, and, and if Hillary didn't have, Paul Begala was not there or Van Jones uh, was not in attendance, then I often, if Bill Press was there, I would take up for the Hillary side or mm-hmm. I would take up for the Bernie side because my right. job was just to call the plays. I didn't really right. get involved in but, this, but, but this did, question.
1: Did, yeah, why, why? Because
2: I gave, because if I was under pressure, uh, like the entire DNC, to make sure that we we expanded a number of debates. I was also under pressure from Black Lives Matters and others that we also talk about, quote-unquote, issues concerning people of color. The death penalty, this thing about the super predator, uh, the crime bill, uh, and also— um, they wanted to talk about Flint, so my job was to give. I gave both candidates heads up that we were going to expand, and also um, because I'm a player, I also said that we were going to talk about some issues. I gave them some. I gave them heads and up. And did
1: you? You say you did it to both candidates. Did you give both candidates the same information?
2: Uh, absolutely. The difference is is that WikiLeaks, uh, which <coughs> WikiLeaks only uh, put out emails that. It had Bernie's name in it, or that could so discord. I mean, I knew there was something wrong when I came home and I said to CNN, I said, give me a chance to go home. I know I can find all my emails because I have all my emails. The only emails I could not find were my DNC emails because the DNC server was wiped out uh with all of our emails because all of our phone, everything was right. just corroded and corrupted. So had
1: they not been, there would have been emails there to the Sanders people as Either well.
2: Either emails, text Mex Text messages or whatever. Ted Devine, uh, who I dealt with, who along with Mark Longabar. Uh, that's campaign. right. Ted and Mark, Simone Sanders, all of the Sanders people vouched for me saying, we know Donna because Donna gave everybody heads up. You know, in my book, I also said I used to give Sean Spicer before he became, you know. The other Sean Spicer. Before he became g- Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, but, that's a yeah. good one. I gave Sean <laughs> heads up because yeah. you always do this. In our business, you want to know what, you don't want your candidate to go in there and get blindsided. I wanted them to know that, I wanted them to know two things. One, that we were going to have a dialogue about issues that people of color cared about. And two, I wanted to make it very clear that we have diverse voices. So, Roland Martin, TV1, uh, had agreed to also co-moderate this discussion. And I worked with Roland Martin on those questions. I mean, think about it. I mean, you know me. I, I got to work with somebody. I needed to work with somebody who understood. Van Jones and I had uh, had discussed when are we going to talk about these issues because the people in the black community and others wanted us to talk about these mm-hmm. issues. So I gave everybody a heads up. Unfortunately, WikiLeaks only put out the information. It was John's emails and I didn't have access to John John's emails, right. and so I tried to get John. I say, "Well, John, so, tell me if that's my email," because I didn't trust. At this right. point, I didn't trust right. nothing. Uh, and no one, I couldn't find. I couldn't find my emails. I couldn't find the, the the ones that I sent to Senator Sanders. And so I apologized. But that night, that night, I'll never forget it, as long as I live. By the time I got home, I had a suspicious package on my, my door, and then I started getting death threats. And I called CNN and I said, I had begged them. I said, don't do this because I know what's going to happen. And I said, give me time to get home. I was in Atlanta. I was, you know, Atlanta was supposed to be one of the, uh, Georgia was supposed to be one of those expansion states. I said, give me time to get home. I changed my flag, took a nine o'clock flight. By the time I got into my house at midnight, I had a package on my step and just my phone was ringing off the hook. And the rest is history. But no, WikiLeaks sought to, to uh, divide us, and they took active measures to divide the party and discredit Hillary Clinton.
1: You, one other thing that got a lot of attention about your book is this suggestion that you had thought about replacing Hillary with Joe Biden. And that surprised me because I knew that the chairman of the party couldn't, by fiat— replace the, the nominee. So uh, I, I explain that a little.
2: You know, David, the most interesting uh, criticism I've had over the last week was that uh, everyone is explaining to me the rules. Now, I understand you're a past I, master I, I, on that. I, I, You'd be the person I'd ask about yeah, that. Yeah, well, you know, Section 7G uh, in the charter, uh, Section 3 in the rules of the convention says the national chair... Uh, in the case of death resignation or Incapacity, disability yeah. that the national chair that day i started off that morning in washington dc and i started getting phone calls and they kept saying what's wrong with hillary i'm like nothing i just saw her two days ago and then i got another so call on
1: september 11th when she had this when she fell, health incident when she and stumbled stumbled in the street
2: yeah And I kept calling back and forth to Brooklyn. And I kept telling Brooklyn, I said, ladies and gentlemen, I am the chair of the party. Just please, what is wrong? What's happening? Because I will go out there and defend her. I mean, and when I saw the quote-unquote, when it went viral. Yes. Oh, my God. I had to unplug. I still have a landline, David. I'm a little old. <laughs> I, I had to unplug my landline, turn off my phone, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Because at that time, we didn't know. None of us knew. And Charlie Baker came down to D.C. the next day to help me put out all of the fires. Char- yeah. Charlie. Charlie Baker was a top lieutenant to mm-hmm. the Clinton campaign. The reason why it became a firestorm and I had to consider what the national chair would recommend if I had to— go about calling Barack Obama, go about mm-hmm. calling Nancy Pelosi, go about calling Chuck Schumer, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to know from Charlie if everything was okay. He said yes, but Don Fowler Sr., the former chair of the party, had told Politico that the party had to get ready. Elaine Kmart was calling me. It's all in the book, hats. Uh, Elaine Kmart started calling me. What are we going to do? I had an enormous pressure when I finally got the call. That she was up, and that she was diagnosed with pneumonia. I say I can handle. I'll take it from here. I had to tamp down all of the rumors, but yes, I put in the book that I did. I had to spend one evening of my life thinking, mm-hmm. how would I handle this? Mm-hmm. And you know, so this
1: was really a hypothetical in your head. If the worst course, case happened, of course, if the worst case happened. I have to ask you uh, uh, what's uh, become an issue uh, just recently is uh the fact that the DNC had uh through apparently through their lawyers financed this so-called dossier the opposition research and this document that was compiled by uh, John, uh by by Steele uh, the uh, GPS yeah the uh the former British uh, intelligence officer and uh did you know and did you know at any time when you during the, the time that you were chairman, a, a chair of the party, that the, this expenditure had been made?
2: You know, one of the things I did as chair, uh, when I first became chair, I wanted a list of all of the staff, their salaries, uh, all of the consultants, and their monthly fees. Because I knew we were, we were broke. I was a volunteer. I wasn't getting a, a salary. I was traveling on my own nickel and dime. And... I wanted to see the list. I did not see them on the list. Well, I received a call from uh, someone in the media uh, toward the end of October. And as always, whenever there was a quote-unquote expenditure that I could not see on paper, I went to the lawyers because lawyers are lawyers, okay? I'm not making any disparaging comments lawyers about are lawyers. are lawyers, yeah. They are lawyers, okay? And, and, I, and I have on my phone a text message to Mark Elias, is MI6 a
1: lawyer for the DNC and for the Clinton and
2: candidate. for HFA, uh, Hillary for America? And I said, I said, Is MI6 on our payroll? Need to know. That is my exact text. And he called me and he said, You don't need to know. So I found out, like everyone else, a few weeks ago that uh, clearly they were on our payroll, but they were on through legal, meaning that the legal, uh, we paid. Perkins CUI forty grand a month, the DNC. Plus we gave them additional money for our remediation efforts from our um, uh, the cyber attacks and we had offensive what I call litigation to keep polls open or the consent decree. So there's a
1: lot of money flowing.
2: A lot of money flowing. But I because I'm a stickler for details, I knew exactly how much money we were paying Perkins Cooey. It was not under my authority to know that amount because that was the account that the Hillary campaign they, they Under were the in agreement charge. that was struck. Yeah, that was so it's mind.
1: plausible when Debbie Wasserman Schultz, your predecessor, says she didn't know about it that she didn't know about it.
2: Because this money was being spent back in April, April of 2016. I was not chair until July 29th, 2016. So Debbie was chair. But again, this is why I picked on that agreement. That agreement gave them the right to spend money on. Fusion GPS, all of these other things that we should not have been spending money on unless unless the party approved it, and, and the party who, did not approve it.
1: And who would authorize that?
2: Well, that is a question that the Clinton campaign needs to... And so far, they've all said they didn't know. So Someone l- had to know.
1: Let, let me just finish there, because um, the other thing that's gotten quite a bit of attention is you, you were pretty critical of the uh, Clinton campaign, and uh, you shared... The anxiety you felt during the campaign. Just very briefly, sum up for me what it is that you felt they didn't do that they uh, should have done, and would it have made a difference in the campaign?
2: Well, first of all, I wish they would have written a post-mortem. When the party, when the election was over, I heard from Barack Obama right away. On 11-14, he got on a phone call with all of the members of the DNC, the donors, the volunteers, and he said, you know, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry we fell short, but thank you. I heard from everybody but the Clinton campaign, who had in, in effect run the DNC, at least the financial part, and I said, we need a full account of what happened. I don't know what the polling said. I don't know what the data said. I was not on any of those strategic calls. They made a conscious decision not to utilize the staff and the resources at the DNC. I made a conscious decision because I had Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and Joe Biden, and others. I made a conscious decision to make the DNC part of the 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 operations of the Clinton campaign. And so I was concerned that this group of Staffers, And remember, I've hired so many staff people in my life. I tell people I have 300 children, different daddies, of course, (laughs) uh, and a few mamas, too. Um, But I wanted a full accountant of what happened. And like before, when I would go to them after I would come back from a state, I just got blown off. Like, okay, Madam Chair. I'm like, no, we need a full accountant of what happened.
1: You've also said that you thought that the campaign itself was, I think you said lifeless. Uh, yeah, you, you uh, explain that,
2: David. I've been involved in enough campaigns to know when something is happening, something is not happening. I I came up to Chicago twice in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve. On um, on both uh, occasions, the people were. I mean, it was humming. Yeah. There was volunteers. There was activity. Yes, there were volunteers. There were activity. But in terms of the day to day people, they were sitting there. Everybody was looking at their computers. I'm like, who's talking? Who's talking to voters? And and we were hacked, and so I kept trying to tell Brooklyn, I call them Brooklyn, Yeah, I'm like, don't rely on your data, because if our data was hacked, your data was hacked, the DCCC data was hacked, we need to find something other than computer models. And my theory of the case, as we used to say, is that we need to go down ballot. I don't trust this top-down strategy. They had a top-down strategy in just a handful of states. And I said, we need to go bottom-up. So- in in Las Vegas, which is Clark County, I said, let's go and find the highest vote getters, the people who get their vote- votes out every two years or every four years. And Harry Reid was not on the ballot. So this time I went to all of those politicians in Las Vegas, and I did the same in every battleground state. And I could tell you state by state, the number of people would tell me up front, there's no activity. Gwen Moore from Milwaukee, no activity. L.C. Hastings down in Broward, no activity. Ed Rendell calling me, I need 300000 because there's no activity, there's no signs, there's nothing. And, David, I had to raise that money because Brooklyn kept telling me, don't worry, Madam Chair, it's okay. They were going to win. And at 5 o'clock that afternoon on November 8th, I am still raising my voice. I'm still saying to Brooklyn, the turnout is not as good as we think it should be. Detroit's not turning out. And they criticized me, David, for sending money to Chicago, but they didn't. They didn't look to see what I sent money to Chicago for. Barack Obama had agreed to do robocalls, and and Tammy Duffworth wanted those robocalls. Was the job of the party to provide those robocalls? He's the president of the United States. Kamala Harris wanted robocalls for her race, and everyone that wanted robocalls as the chair of the party, I provide robocalls. Well, guilty as charged. There will be. There will
1: be. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure more postmortems about that as people think forward to what needs to happen uh, uh in 2018-2020 from a democratic standpoint. The book is called Hacks: The Inside Story of the Break of the Break-ins and Breakdowns that Put Donald Trump in the White House. Donna Brazil, always a pleasure to be with you.
2: Thank you David for being in the midst of every storm that I've been in, and much more, so <laughs> we, thank you. We both have the gray hairs. <laughs> i got a little purple tint now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.